0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Adam Murchie, the founder and director of Forza Capital, a specialist investment firm that has considerable skill and track record in the property and specialty property area of structuring funds of private assets where the asset is distressed or has something unusual about it that allows them to buy it at a cheaper than market value to then turn around restructure and then or sell in the future. I talk with Adam about the current market conditions, having recorded this in early July and the coming opportunity as they perceive it, that will be presented in this space, presented by COVID-19 pan- pandemic that's currently playing out around the world. Please remember this podcast is not, nor is it designed to be specific advice or recommendation, we encourage people to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek advice before making any investments. Please keep your feedback coming. really enjoy that. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks a lot and enjoy the podcast. Adam, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks for having me. Adam, uh, perhaps you could... uh, Start off by giving us an introduction to yourself, please, and Forza Capital.
1: Sure. So I'm the founding director of Forza Capital, which is a property funds management business I established just over 10 years ago with my business partner, Ashley Wayne. We've now worked together as a team for nearly two decades.
0: Okay. And what what has been your background in the industry?
1: My background is actually quite eclectic, so for the last 20 years I've been involved in property funds management, Um, but prior to that I was actually the CEO of a state sporting federation for four years. So I'm classically trained as a sport manager, so I did a Bachelor of Commerce in Sport Management and ran a cycling organisation here in Victoria and then competed uh, as a cyclist and then made the transition to property in 2001 and have been doing that ever since.
0: Okay, well, I can't pass up that opportunity. What, what did you compete in on the bike?
1: Oh, I rode, rode on the road um, for nearly 20 years. So I sort of retired from serious racing back in 2013, which sort of correlated with uh, starting a family, the, doing 600 kilometres a week while still running a business and having uh, young kids is not sustainable.
0: And, and, and what was the pinnacle, just to digress here, from uh, the subject matter of today's podcast, what was the pinnacle of that cycling career?
1: I won a Victorian Championship in 2011 and a couple of, I suppose, near misses in probably the biggest one-day race here in Australia, the Melbourne of Warrnambool. Sort of still have some unfinished business with that event, if you like. Um, But really, for me, it was was always just a serious hobby and a passion. I mean, it was always combined with work. I made the decision not to try and chase the dream. I sort of always liked having a good counterbalance to everything I was doing and works a great counterbalance to cycling and vice versa. And I think that's the same for any, any sort of form of sport or activity. They actually have, they're really good when done in parallel with each other.
0: So how did you develop an interest in property?
1: So, I was headhunted into a property business to help them um, whilst they're on their growth trajectory and after about 18 months there, the discussion centred around looking to build a funds management offering into the business. So to be honest, it was something that they weren't really across or aware of and neither was I, but I spent the time to do a lot of research and basically understand how the whole thing and the industry hung together. And then we literally started building a funds and management business from the ground up. So obtained AFSLs, went set up compliance committees, and then literally built, a I suppose, a client base around that. And then a fairly significant portfolio of assets across Australia. Um, And then ultimately, we left there in 2009, nothing to do with the GFC, just a change in direction.
0: And that's when you set up forza capital is that right correct that's right and and when you set up forza what do you wish you knew then that you know now
1: uh that's a good question i had a little, a little bit of a rant this morning with one of my colleagues just about some of the structural issues within the whole sector um i'm, I'm going to actually change it and say there's probably not a lot i would i would change that I actually pulled our business plan out that we documented when we started Forza 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it almost reads as if we had written it yesterday. There are a number of things we made a big call on at the time that were core to everything that we stood for. One was that we were completely independent. The second was that there was no conflicted remuneration, so we've never paid a commission. And that was a big call to make back in 2010, setting up a business where you're not going to participate in any conflicted remuneration because we just had a view that vertical integration was just bad and Mm. time would eventually bear that out, which clearly has happened. But at the time, that was a fairly significant call to make. And the other one was we wanted to design our business to be the one that we would back ourselves. At the end of the day, people refer to us as fund managers, but we actually consider ourselves investors. And it's a, a subtle distinction, but we actually think it's a very important distinction.
0: And when you're referencing there the decision not to receive conflicted remuneration in the property space, was that more to do with distribution and the decision not to pay advisors to recommend their product or pay a commission associated with your financial product? Or was it at the other end on the construction side in terms of receiving uh, from developers or other property participants uh, remuneration?
1: Now, it was, it was more from the advisor point of view because we wanted people investing with us that were doing it purely because of the virtues of the investment itself, not because of any remuneration structure. Um, and I suppose it's a very pure view of the world and it's maybe we're a little bit too pure in our view on these things for our own good at times. But I, just there's a number of beliefs I have that are important to us and, and what we think makes investment work. And, and that, that really is at the crux of investment management um, in our view. And you know, there's, there's a whole lot of other stuff that sort of goes on with that. We like the fact that our clients do their own due diligence. They're not necessarily relying on third-party research reports. We think that sort of goes to the whole sort of best interest test in terms of what what our clients are looking to do, either on their personal part or on behalf of, of their clients. We were working with uh, advisory groups and the like. We think that's great discipline and we love working with People that get their hands dirty, and that it forces us to always be on top of our game. You never know what question you might get asked. Uh, and we think that for us instills a very good discipline across our business in that we have to have not just our A game, but our A game on every day.
0: And you referenced early on, you made a few decision, decisions back then that have proved to be pivotal. What were some of those decisions that you made?
1: One was obviously the non-conflicted remuneration. The second was to focus on wholesale-only investors. Um, I mean, there's obviously a pretty significant push now. Most people seem to be going that way. I think ASIC's got a little overzealous on a number of things and have actually created a situation where they're making it structurally too hard for the average retail investor to get access to quality product. And that's another one of the, I suppose, issues I have with with the overall sector. Um, And we also designed ourselves so that we only did investments as there was an opportunity, so no open-ended fund. We think, again, that on our part instils a discipline that we have to find the best deal. It's not an open-ended structure. We didn't want the pressure of having money that wasn't invested burning a hole in our head and our pocket and sort of forcing us to be a little bit undisciplined. Um, and we like the ability that our investors got to pick and choose every exposure that they had. We think that that's at the, end, at the uh, absolute essence of what investing is all about. Uh, and that sort of has made things hard in some areas because um, that type of model precludes a lot of, I suppose, distribution in a lot of sectors because they want open-ended funds. They put it on a platform and, and the money drops in. Um, we understand how that is, is how it works and how it's efficient, but, For us, we didn't think that was a good fit in terms of picking the eyes out of the market and only putting the best opportunities forward.
0: Quality and ease aren't always correlated, I'd say.
1: No, no. Well, I mean, the same thing goes with diversification too. Um, I always say never assume the manager can do it better than you can do it yourself. If I look historically at some of what's happened, um, diversification is great in a stable market, but if you go into a market such as what we think we're heading into over the next six to 12 months, um, invariably what can happen is the best assets are sold in order to prop up an investment vehicle and you're left holding a diversified uh, bucket of uh, poorer quality assets that you wouldn't have selected if you had the choice. So we, we take the view that it's a cheap insurance policy to have each investment on a standalone basis in its own silo with no cross-collateralisation of any form Um, if touch wood something does go uh, amiss then you can quarantine that and and manage that out and you don't compromise the the rest of a portfolio we think again they're, they're simple things but they're just absolutely critical to I suppose sort of portfolio
0: construction and asset management so what does Forza look and feel like today Adam
1: we're a small team. Uh, there's only seven of us plus a, a non-executive chairman. Um, we don't plan to be a, a, a massive business. We like being nimble. We think in the area in which we operate, which we're looking at opportunistic and value added style deals, the ability to move quickly and, and and decisively is absolutely essential to success in that space. Um, in, in terms of, Sort of, I suppose what we're about as a business, we're just about trying to find the best possible opportunity. Every dollar you invest has an opportunity cost, so you need to make sure that you've got that invested in the best possible deal you can find. So we don't tend to do an immense number of transactions each year, sort of three to five would be an amazing year for us. It's all about the discipline of being the right deal and we will go through periods as we have over the last 12 to 18 months where we literally do nothing where we just can't make the risk reward dynamics of investment stack up relative to the um, opportunities we're seeing.
0: Can you maybe dig into what you mean by uh, opportunistic and value added deals and perhaps give an example of those type of transactions that you've done in the past that look and feel like those sort of headlines?
1: Yeah. So I suppose one of our specialities is actually operating well in dysfunctional markets Um, And a couple of examples I can give there. One was, if you rewind back to mid-2015 and up in Brisbane, their commercial office market was just being absolutely obliterated. They had 25% vacancy across the CBD. Um, At that point, we undertook a transaction where we bought a 90% vacant building within the CBD in a market that was one quarter vacant as it was, Um, We actually, there was an article in the Fin Review at the time when the deal was announced and we got uh, sounded out by a research group, strongly counselling that we don't do the deal and we buy their research report. Um, Fast forward four years, we got the building 96.5% occupied and sold, uh, bought in at $20 million and sold out at 42.1. The whole investment thesis there was centred around being able to do lease transactions that met the uh, metrics of our competitors that is we could offer the same incentives and tenure but we could undercut them on rent and therefore that made us ultra competitive and we could just go into the market and buy tenants so that was one example um, where we did that another one was rewind to a sort of another uh, economic crisis back in 2012 during the midst of the greek debt crisis we bought an asset in melbourne it was almost 100% occupied at the time. It sat on an acre of land 500 metres from the CBD in Carlton. Um, it was returning $2 million a year net. We paid um, a little over $20 million for it, went through a pos- uh, process of repositioning it over a handful of years, and sold out and turned an investor's dollar into about $2.20, and I think it was about three and a half years. So we actually had two goes at that transaction. Though The first time trying to raise the money in January of 2012, we the psyche was just such that it was GSC Mark II and people were literally hiding under the beds. We had another go in July of that year and were successful. and it Ultimately, we've proven to be a great investment. So we quite like we quite like messy markets. We find what happens is um, good assets often get over-discounted relative to their risk. And the art form there is spending a lot of time in the coal face to understand the drivers of the markets and the risk uh, relativity. Um, to the pricing. There are some assets that are discounted heavily and should be because the, the asset will be distressed and will remain that way.
0: And, Adam, ha- how are you able to get comfort uh, on that property in Brisbane, for instance, that you're able to let it at a discount and get a, the, the building full uh, where competitors couldn't? What, what could you do that others can't?
1: Our competitive advantage was our price point. We, we bought an asset that prior to our acquisition had traded for $35 million, and then after that purchase, they'd spent another $10.5 million on the asset. So it was owing the vendor probably somewhere between 45 and $50 million. In any event, we bought it for less than half of that. So that meant that we always say that there's no greater truism in investment. You make your money when you buy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we bought well, and that's important because it gives you then immense firepower. Um, to be ultra-competitive. And that's, that's the art form in what we do. It's how you create a margin of safety in the transaction. It's all nice and well to sit here and talk about the, the successes that we've had, but I think probably the greatest takeaway from that is, is that we did it in a lot of cases with a relatively low risk to capital. Um, talking about making money and great returns is one thing, but capital preservation is just absolutely paramount. And it's probably fair to say that nine in 10 of the deals that we look at have great upside potential, but they get uh, filtered out because we can't form a view as to how you adequately lock out the downside risk. And that for us is sort of the the art form in what we do.
0: And Adam, who do you typically compete with for those type of assets or those uh, investments in those properties? I would imagine the typical um, funds management group or, uh, you know, listed real estate investment trust isn't particularly interested in some of these problematic assets or what appear to be problematic at the point of sale. Yeah, that, that's right.
1: Look, I mean, I, I wouldn't call them competitors. We, we call them more peers. I mean, we, we actually engage reasonably closely with a number of these groups. They're groups like Corvell out of Sydney, Quintessential out of Melbourne, um, groups like that. There's a, There's a few others, Newmark, they're all pretty good operators in their own right. Um, and we sort of collectively have the view that the market's big enough for all of us. Um, there's often a little bit of trade of information, and we I know there's certainly significant crossover in our client base. Um, and we sort of happily coexist with them. In fact, on occasion where we haven't had deals, and we're aware where some of our peers have, we openly refer our clients onto them. We, we would prefer them to invest with good quality operators that are more than likely going to preserve their capital and enhance it, which means there's more for everyone next time around than uh, be it and see them disappear and invest in something that compromises their portfolio.
0: So the investment's not coming from institutional investors and the large swathe of superannuation money out there by and large or smaller um, individuals or groups of individuals getting together as such. Is, a, is that a little bit of a gap in the market? That, that's correct, David. And that,
1: that's, I suppose, a, a, a little area we've tried to exploit. We're targeting assets sort of above $20 million and probably less than 100 which is too, too much for individual privates in, as a general rule and probably getting a little on the small side for institutions. Though I must say in the last five years, we've been getting a bit of creep from both ends of the, the bracket there. Um, because the availability of investable um, opportunities was fast disappearing. And what's your
0: track record in the space been like?
1: Um, well, thus far on the deals that we've had uh, or undertaken at Forza and exited, we're averaging an IRR net of fees of about twenty six point four percent. So yeah, that's it's a pretty high hurdle. That also is part of the discipline as to why we make sure we're not doing, uh, you know and an immense number of deals each year because the reality is they're hard to find um, and they're even harder to execute on. So you, you sort of, there's a natural bandwidth or a capacity constraint, I suppose, in, in terms of what we do.
0: And, and how do you typically find them without giving away the secret source?
1: Oh, look, it's twofold. One, one is you obviously need a very strong relationship with agents and you're constantly briefing them as to the types of attributes you're looking for from from the marketplace, um, the types of sectors you're looking at, and then the, the sort of the, the asset dynamic, if you like, um, we also get an immense amount of deal flow and opportunity from our client base. We invest with a number of um, wealthy individuals and business owners, and they're often well connected. So we find on occasion it manifests its own deal flow um, opportunity. That everyone loves an off market transaction. Um, The reality is they're actually quite hard to do. And if you're doing off-market deals, inevitably you have to pay a premium because you're convincing a vendor that wasn't going to sell to sell. Um, We find the best deals are often done on market or the, the best purchases we've had in the last few years have actually been an asset that was on market and went through a failed marketing campaign. And the vendors had a a little bit of, I suppose, a reality check on pricing. And we've been able to come in when it's sort of no longer advertised for sale and and pick it up at a fairly reasonable discount to its previous asking price. And that for us has been a happy hunting ground. We we maintain a massive database internally of assets that have been for sale that haven't concluded. And we're regularly reaching back out and tapping the agents on the shoulder to uh, see whether any of those... uh, those assets are for sale at a, at a more realistic price or something something that sort of better meets our expectations.
0: You need someone to do the uh, price adjusting for you. Um, what What's some examples of perhaps investments or assets that you've entered into that haven't gone as well as you'd hoped? And what are some of the lessons you've learned out of that?
1: We've only had one. Um, and I, I say that with my hand on my heart. And We haven't lost money. It just was a case of we didn't make as much as we would have liked. Um, The the lesson out of that was, and I think a lot of people in property probably learnt the lesson last year, over the last 12 months, it was the year of tenants staying put. It was very, very hard to extract a tenant out of anywhere. Um, And We had an asset that we bought very well and we went through a refurbishment of, of that asset and put that up for lease. And we were just finding it extremely hard to get traction with tenants. Now, as I sit here uh, having this discussion with you, David, I'm hoping on uh, getting a, a signed lease from the tenant we've just uh, agreed to terms with on on that asset. But the reality is the time delay has hurt the IRR for us. Um, and that's something that we haven't worn Lightly, we openly have spoken to uh, our, that was a single um, investor asset, that one, and we've openly spoken with the um, the investor and said we're going to to recut the fee structure there uh, in order to to get it to a position that, that they're comfortable with and we're comfortable with. So. I think when, when things change, you need to change your mind and your position too. So it sort of goes back to what I was saying before, where we look at this as investors. It's what we would like to see done if we were uh, in, in the inverse of the situation. Therefore, we openly started that discussion ourselves to say, look, what we, what we uh, promised you that we could deliver obviously hasn't happened for one reason or another. It wasn't, um, wasn't through any... I suppose mismanagement, it was a function of broadly just market conditions, but we need to respect that for what that is and and make adjustments. So, we're working through that literally as we speak, but um, we haven't, in the two decades I've done this, um, I haven't been in a position where I've had to look an investor in the eye and tell them we've lost their money. Um, And and that's something... (laughs) I say to people, if you want to, you want a good fund manager. Find the one that's lies awake in bed at night worrying about losing someone's money, because they're the ones that will ultimately be the best custodians of your capital. Um, It's very easy in funds management and investing to promise the world and underdeliver, and by that time, by the time that realization manifests itself, often a lot of money has been made at very little risk um, to the person making the promises, and that 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 probably is one of my greatest frustrations with the sector that takes years for that dynamic to play out.
0: So Adam, you you reference there in the environment at present, it's difficult to get people to sign up or commit to leases or I'd imagine longer term leases. And I'll, I'll reference for our listeners benefits that we're recording this in early July, uh, just as Melbourne's going through its sort of a uh, second wave with COVID. Uh, the other opportunities where you've invested Uh, seem to be financial dislocations or other things going on in the world um, where it would seem reasonably logical that the fundamental drivers behind property aren't dislocated Um, to what extent do you think the current changes that we're seeing brought about by we're recording this via zoom for instance um, and and people are isolating working at home um, and you're seeing quite a few people saying, well, particularly you know, that I'm speaking to in Sydney, well, maybe I might go back to work, to the office two or three days a week. Um, therefore, there is speculation that you know, office spaces may not not recover to the same level that they were previously, or it would take a, a, a long time. What sort of evidence or what are you seeing with relation to that, i.e. is this expediting, is this covid outbreak, this pandemic, expediting a change that may not um, see demand in that space, get back to where it was?
1: Good question. Um, And I've been spending a lot of time on this. I think there's a lot of rhetoric that's being pushed around the market and headlines being generated from people that haven't necessarily gone and actually asked too many questions. They're just regurgitating a lot of fact they've heard from someone else. Mm -hmm. So, we we actually went and did a survey of our client base. A lot of people, a lot of business owners or very senior management personnel in big businesses or or, or wealthy private families Um, and invariably got to their position by running very successful operating businesses. So, I suppose the the sort of praise of all of that was about 80% felt that working from home was okay, it was serviceable, uh, and they were reasonably efficient. When we asked whether they felt whether they were effective, 75% either said absolutely not or not at all. So there was a big disconnect between being able to get things done and being able to do things well. When we then asked the knock-on question, which was, how do you think this dynamic is going to impact your workspace requirements? Um, over 70% said it's it's not going to change it at all, or the only change will be that they'll maintain their footprint and allow their staff to work more flexibly. So we've started asking this question for every opportunity we get. Um, I'm really starting to firm in my view that I don't think that workspace ratios themselves are going to, to um sorry, workspace requirements or floor space is, is going to be materially handed back. I think there'll be sections where definitely it is some businesses can work remotely very well. I can tell you categorically that Forza Capital doesn't work as well remotely as we do uh, as a team. We're far better as a, as a collective than individuals. And I think any sort of business in our space would say that rings true for them as well. Um, the one bit I haven't been able to get anyone to answer to me yet is how on earth you mentor staff and build culture remotely? I don't think you can. And I think the longer this goes on, the greater the realisation from business that that's a massive gap that they haven't really contemplated. You know, how, how, do you, how do you fill that, um, that gaping hole in a remote working environment? So probably the best answer I've had on this topic was from our chairman. So he, he uh, is a CEO of a, a reasonably significant investment business. And he said that what they will do, they'll keep their floor space, they'll mandate that the staff are at work as a collective group for a couple of days a week, and then the rest of the time they can work remotely. So what that means is, you still require 100% of the floor space, but it's only fully occupied 40% of the time. Um, the bigger knock-on effect I think might actually be that workspace requirements per employee could increase. We've already seen examples of the federal government revising a leasing brief and increasing the ratio of square meterage per employer from one one person to twelve square meters to one to fourteen as a result of the social distancing. So, uh, if you start deploying that through the property market, that actually starts to look really interesting. So, I think as a as a as a, as a net result, it's a bit of a zero sum game. There'll be some space handed back. There'll be more taken by others, in, depending on the style of business they run. The art form here is going to be picking the winners and the losers. I think there are certain styles of business and and assets that will ride this cycle, this structural shift quite well. And there are others that are going to be materially exposed.
0: So what sort of opportunities are you starting to see emerge as a result of this dislocation in the markets or do you expect to see over the next few months?
1: Right now, nothing. Um, To be honest, right now, we're quite surprised at how robust the market pricing is. Um, which seems completely out of kilter with if you speak to the actual occupants and you know, the tenants in a lot of cases, they'll tell you that their business is hurting. So there does seem to be a dislocation between pricing at a market level and the actual reality on the ground. You only need to walk through any CBD or major shopping area at the moment. You know, there's probably a quarter to a third of the uh, the shops that are vacant. That has to have a knock-on effect. Like you, you can't just... Um, You can't just soak that up through a a sector and pretend that nothing has happened here. Um, So we think things probably start to get interesting come September when, from a property perspective, there's a bit of a standstill at the moment with this government-imposed mandatory code of conduct. I mean, that's a first in any event where a sector has effectively had to underwrite its, uh, its occupants. Um, and then you've obviously got the, the government stimulus and other packages that there's, there's a sort of defined end date at the end of September as well. At that point, I think the economic reality starts to set in and you, we start to see how things might play out. We are expecting some material shifts in sentiment and, and pricing. Uh, we do think that there is going to be some interesting opportunity to present probably not readily during this year, but certainly we think through the course of 2021.
0: And hence you're uh, raising funds to take advantage of that. Can you talk to talk to me, I think it's a reasonable segue to talk about the priority offer, what that looks like um, from an investor's point of view, the, the Forza Priority Framework, I think it's called. Yeah, that, that's right.
1: So it, it's not a fund because that's it's actually just not a fun we called it a framework because that's really how we have structured it we and the rationale i suppose it goes back to our opening discussion point in terms of what we do as a business we whilst we understand how blind funds work and they can be highly advantageous given the likely dynamic that is that you've got a pool of committed capital and you can make decisions very quickly Mm -hmm. that avails great opportunity that for us though grated up against the fact that investors are bound by that framework and lose the capacity to choose. So we spent about six weeks just tearing our own thinking apart to say, how do we get the attributes of the sort of blind fund that get you to the market and create opportunity in terms of seeing really great deal flow but without locking people into a fixed position that is, is inflexible so we came up with a framework which whereby people can make a, it's just a commitment we're not drawing any money now so it's a commitment to a sum of capital uh, across a suite of opportunistic style deals and they can pick the sort of deal exposure they're looking for and then each opportunity we will um, provide on a standalone individual fund basis And I suppose the major change is the default position is everyone that's made a commitment to the framework participates in each fund unless they nominate to withdraw. The reason being for that is it helps us optimise uh, timing in an environment where there's likely to be greater time sensitivity from a vendor's point of view because speed and certainty will avail you the greatest discounts and, and the best opportunities. So we try to design it such that if I suppose from an investor point of view, it's sort of the equivalent of a free option. They can put their hand up. They're not putting the money up until they see the deal. If they like the deal, they put the money up. If they don't like the deal, they can withdraw uh, and, and fall out of the framework, if you like. So we're trying to create it. We know that going into the market with that type of, um, with that type of structure will help create its own deal flow. I mean, we've seen it already, the, the sort of limited bandwidth we've given it amongst our client base, uh, and on things such as LinkedIn, you know, we've already been getting a lot of um, requests from agents and the like seeking to to tie up with us that just goes to show that they're already thinking this way and if there was a anecdotal evidence that uh, our thesis of this framework creating opportunity, well, I think that's proven it. So really what we're just trying to do is get ahead of the curve. If If you're trying to get yourself ready when the opportunities are coming, it's too late. So for us now, it's, this is the sort of dynamic we operate well in. We, clients and the like understand the way we're, we're wired. We like the opportunity to still be flexible and put it on a deal by deal basis. So really what we're trying to do is build a war chest and then we do nothing other than sit and wait. And sort of we're, we're then straddling the, uh, the nexus of patience and opportunity, because that's, that's when the really interesting stuff happens.
0: And what sort of size war chest are you looking to build?
1: Ideally, if we could get to $100 million plus, we think that gives us some significant firepower. Um, And if ultimately there's amazing deal flow, and that's allocated reasonably readily, well, there's nothing stopping doing a a second round on the same basis. But we don't see a need to get crazy just yet. We sort of we start and see what the market throws up, um, and we deploy the capital as needed. And if ultimately we see excess opportunity, well, we, we can go and have another discussion with our clients and see collectively what the, uh, the
0: mood is. And Adam, uh, what happens if a client commits to the framework and they make a commitment, let's say they say, look, I'm, I'm, I like this, I'm committed to a million dollars. And then the first investment comes across the bow and they opt out of that. What happens? Are they out of the framework altogether to, or do they still get to look at the next one that comes along?
1: No, they they drop out and I know it's it's probably, David, seems to be a bit of a harsh penalty and I recognise that, but the one, through experience, what we know is that you don't get many opportunities with the sort of dynamic we think we'll be facing. You've got already nervous vendors and already tight timeframes and if you make it too flexible, what you can actually do is destabilise your own opportunities by having people withdraw um, coming into the conclusion of a deal. So what we're saying to people is you've got the right to pull out, yes. um, but don't exercise that lightly. The, really what it does, it puts the pressure on us. Um, we, we, If anyone can't afford to have people pull out of a transaction and then drop out of the framework, it's us, because we limit then the available capital bandwidth we have for future opportunities. So that, that for us is the worst possible outcome as a business. So if we ever had to have our A-plus game ready, it's now. Um, the asset selection and the discipline around due diligence is even more heightened. So we think that um, on the balance of probability, we should ensure that the need for anyone to exercise their withdrawal right is limited. But notwithstanding, going back to our point, as, as investors as we are ourselves, we still want that right. We think that's that's a highly important point. Um, notwithstanding, that, the, the, it's a bit of a, tra- a series of trade-offs, I suppose. In order to get the speed to market and see the best deals, we needed to make a few changes. Uh, And the minute the market stabilises and goes back to, I suppose, more benign settings, um, the the need for this type of framework is is vastly diminished and we go back to our standard model of uh, individual offers for individual opportunities.
0: So I take it uh, when you see that first property come or asset come across the bow, Um, people go ahead with that. That goes into a special purpose vehicle or a unit trust specific for that asset. Um, What sort of gearing level do you use, if any?
1: Uh, It it will vary uh, on an asset by asset basis. I mean, in this environment, where we're looking at assets with probably a degree of distress and, and already there's, I suppose, value erosion from their intrinsic value, we're probably looking at LVR covenants of, sort of maximum of 55 and ideally drawn debt to probably 50. So we're looking at trying to build covenant headroom in there. And we also run a reasonably robust, unallocated working capital balance. So by way of example, across our existing funds now, 7% of the value, as an average 7% of the value of the debt of each um, fund is held in cash. So it's a bit of a drag on equity, but it's a very cheap insurance policy if you need to amortise debt, undertake works, acquire a tenant. Um, We like that, if ultimately you don't need that, you can return that capital back. But if you find that you need it and you don't have it, it's very, very hard to get your hands on. Um, And I think we'll probably be even, I suppose, more conservative in the way we approach these things going forward in terms of building the capacity in. We think that, yeah, cash will be king, and if you've got access to it and you're able to readily deploy that um, across the right assets, you should be well rewarded with with time and a little bit of discipline.
0: Adam, what would be the perfect if uh, someone comes to you this afternoon, one of those agents ring up and says, look, I've got an asset for you. What could you describe to me, what are the sort of characteristics would, would fit right square in your bullseye at the moment?
1: Um another good question, and two parts to that answer. One is, I think we're likely to see some really good office assets end up with some short-term vacancy and tenancy issues, um, and the the asset will be punished relative to the actual risk of getting that re-tenanted. We really like that. We think with getting the hands dirty and being very tactile, as well as having the capital there to basically go into the market and buy tenants, that will be a, that will be a very, very good strategy and that should end up with some pretty strong returns. Oh, certainly on a risk-adjusted basis, we think that's a quite a low-risk strategy. Um, the other one is that major land bank type sites, but with income, we think that... There's a lot of pressure in the the major, certainly eastern seaboard uh, areas, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, around um, future development, supply and infrastructure delivery. And the governments are starting to wake up to the fact that it's four times more expensive to deliver infrastructure to new communities in the fringe than it is to actually build um, communities around the existing infrastructure. So what we're thinking is going to happen and what we're already seeing happen is, think large-scale industrial land bank type sites in middle suburbia, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, you can buy them for their industrial value, their returning income, um, but ultimately there'll be large redevelopment opportunities and council's already starting to realise that from a strategic planning point of view, they need to start investigating this dynamic and, and actively engaging. And we think that is a really interesting strategy because you can buy these assets um, at land value or below land value. And what I mean by that is it would be worth more in some cases as a vacant site than it would be as an income producing investment um, with an industrial tenant. So we, we love that. That for us is sort of the Holy grail of investing, Um, but it's a little bit like looking for a unicorn. There aren't many of them around.
0: Well, hopefully some of our listeners can be spotters for you. Um, Adam, on the flip side of that, what are you avoiding at the moment? Um, and you might, you might be seeing some of these come across, but uh, I'm interested to know what on the radar are you saying, look, we're seeing some of this, or we think we'll see some of this, but we just won't go near it for whatever reason?
1: Yes. Um, I don't think there's anything right here right now that we're saying we're definitively avoiding. There are certain parts of the market that we think are probably likely to have more pain than less. Um, certainly parts of the residential high-rise development sector we think will look problematic. Um, depends on how you look at that, though, because that also can provide an opportunity. We think that there's going to be, uh, for example, the, the rail and apartments up in, in Sydney at the moment that are in the hands of Deloitte's receivers. There's going to be some stock coming to the market at some pretty significant discounts to move that. Um, for some people, that's actually going to be highly opportunistic. So I think it depends on which side of the fence you're sitting right at this point. Oh, clearly, retail is an issue. I think the, the strip retail is hard work in the in the immediate term. Um, it was already going through a structural shift from retailing to more service-driven users obviously that's just been supercharged and the vacancy is going to have a significant um, impact and drag on that sector so that we we wouldn't readily be looking to go and buy high street retail unless it's got some sort of other reversionary use there's a couple of areas that we think could really work well as decentralized office type space Um, for those users that aren't going back to the cbd office anymore. David, off the back of uh, this COVID dynamic, they're the sorts of uh, areas that they will occupy because they're sort of small, more boutique spaces. They're well surrounded by things such as you know, trains and trams, cafes, restaurants and the like. Um, that, but not, not every asset can be repositioned and repurposed. So that's where there will be a little bit of a natural selection, we think.
0: Adam, can you talk to me a little bit about the fee structure and or alignment of interest in that, if you can, please? Sure. Um, the way we've structured our fees
1: is any upfront and ongoing management fee is at the lower to middle end of the range. We actively track ourselves. I keep a matrix of every opportunity I can get my hands on and, and literally list it out so I know exactly where we sit in the peaking order. So I can say with a high degree of conviction and certainty that we, on our, uh, any upfront and ongoing fee, we are at the middle to lower end of the range. We don't charge an exit fee, any fixed fee at the back end. We like any performance entitlement that we participate in to be at risk, which is, in our view, the way it should be. We are higher than the market there. We're generally 30% over a hurdle, um, whereas the market is often 20% over a hurdle, but with a 1% exit fee. Um, and It's an interesting one because it's optics. I'm pretty regularly told that we're more expensive than our competitors, but we've actually gone and modelled up the fee structure relative to ours and we're actually cheaper uh, and, it, and it's more at risk. So we're, we're quite happy, we, we like the fact that we're backing ourselves and where we can, we try and take reasonable positions in our funds also. I think at this, uh, as I speak to you now, our Forza Capitals, um, whether it's the business Myself, my business partner, we have a nearly 5% of the invested equity across all of our funds. So we don't plan on changing that. We've sort of have set ourselves up in a lot of ways as a, almost a joint family office. Um, yeah, we're doing investing with others, but really it's, it's our own money that we're investing alongside um, also. And again, I think you need to, to eat your own cooking is a, an expression I've heard a couple of times, and I, I think
0: it's, it's apt. How many funds properties are you up to at the moment?
1: At the moment, we've got six existing funds. Okay. So we've we've actually divested a number. Um, so over the last over the last eighteen months, I think our sort of funds under management's gone back by nearly 150 million dollars as we just sort of took stock of opportunities and, and took profit and handed money back and moved on. Much to in some cases our investors' disappointment because they already had money to to invest and we would given them back more. But I think again, you, you can't you can't be too cute about these things. You know, you, you, you make money when you take profits. Um, and our view is there's an opportunity to do that, and, and, and you do that readily.
0: And how many property transactions has the group carried out?
1: Oh, we've done well over 20. So we've we've transacted on about just shy of half a billion dollars worth of property.
0: Okay. And given the style of transactions you're entering into. Uh, where there may be some sort of, you know, other people shy away from when I use the word distress. Um, what sort of rate of return do you think investors in the market should reasonably expect from these type of assets?
1: Oh, look, if you're participating in the value added opportunistic type stuff, you'd be you'd be looking to see mid-teens, IRRs, net of fees and beyond that. Um, I think that's, that's certainly the range in which we will be targeting. Um, the art form here is being able to disclose a number that you're confident of every day of the week of hitting. It's the art form of under-promising and over-delivering. What sure. I mean by that is we, we have done the analysis. The average IRR quoted across our funds was about 14% net um, in our disclosure docs, and we've returned 264 um, at the time, I couldn't have said that we we're going to hit twenty six point four. I think you know, we have to be realistic. We we have benefited also from this significant economic tailwind that everyone has in, in terms of falling interest rates and and, and tightening cap rates. Um, but it's a uh, it's a fraught path if you go in with promoting a high IRR in order to extract the capital, knowing full well that it's a, a bit of a luck-based investment strategy, whether you can actually achieve that or not. thats it. That goes back to my point earlier where often a lot of goodwill is given back with time.
0: Sure. And and it looks like you, once the properties are ent- entered into, there's an ongoing income stream to the investor that's paid out quarterly. Is that correct? Correct. That's right. And And that generally ranges between what sort of area on the properties that you're have in, that you have in mind or you your venture uh,
1: in in the current market we think that number is likely to be somewhere between five to eight percent per annum it's really going to be dependent on the deal um, I mean some of our existing assets are returning um, you know, one one's returning eleven percent at the moment uh, you know I, I'd love sometimes it's hard to when the market and then the metric shift you, you sort of you start with you want to achieve a nine and you realize that it's just not possible. I think being realistic in this low interest rate environment and, and, and still with interest rates and, and bond rates where they are for the foreseeable future, I think five, five to sort of seven, five to eight is a pretty sweet spot, but that that only forms part of the return matrix. The other part is really the asset identification, being able to acquire at a discount and then readily being able to get in and work the asset hard to create capture that intrinsic value and, and, and the capital uplift. Um, that sort of forms your net 15% plus IRR.
0: Adam, I've ticked off all my lists here. Um, Really appreciate your time. I'll give you the, the right of the last word. If there's anything you'd like to leave our listeners with or any points you'd like to make, now's your opportunity.
1: I think the only point to make is that we're in a little bit of a false economy at the moment. From a property perspective, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of standstill arrangements, whether they be codes of conduct with tenants, job keeper, um, rent abatements with, with tenants. Give it some time. I, I think that the economic environment is not as rosy as a lot of people uh, suggested it's going to be. But that's not a bad thing. We actually see that, that that's, the, that's the entry point. That's the opportunistic element to um, where smart, savvy investors really make their money is by taking their, um, their pound of flesh during these cycles where they can use the, uh, the smarts and the discipline to identify value when it presents.
0: Terrific. Adam, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope.
1: Thanks, it's been a pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by
0: visiting codacapital.com.